Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop, and this episode of the podcast is inspired by all the runners with smashed quads out there and all the runners that are going to have smashed quads out there stemming from some sort of mountainous ultra that you have done or are going to do this year. I feel your pain. We have all been through that before. And one of the great mysteries of coaching athletes for these types of events is how to prepare them to contend with all the copious amounts of descending, the damage that goes along, and the loss of control and the loss of technique that happens to go along with all of that descending as well. And so, in order to come up with some science-based explanations on how we could potentially train to ready athletes for this particular demand of trail and ultra running, I brought on a researcher in this area in Arash Kazatarash out of the University of Calgary. I got to know Arash through his presentation that he put on during a downhill specific running seminar put on by the famed physiologist Yame Mie that I just happened to be a panelist on the uphill portion of that seminar. I'll leave links to both of those in the show notes for those of you that want to deep dive into the science and practice of uphill and downhill running. I encourage you all to check it out. But I got to know Arash during this presentation or during this uh, during this webinar and I was absolutely captivated by some of the research that he has done in this area because I think that there are very practical takeaways in terms of how frequently, how much, and how hard you should incorporate downhill running into your sessions to get the most bang for your buck. So with that as a bit of a backdrop, I'm getting right out of the way. Here is my conversation with Arash Kazatarash all about how to train for downhill running. Um, but before we get into it, dude, I was doing some uh, some research uh, research on this in in the background, and it, I had a hard time actually getting to your research because all I could find were uh, like lay articles and things like that about pull ups. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> so so just as a little bit of a yeah. personal story, I know you're probably a humble person, but I think the audience would like to like to know. What is the fascination with pull-ups, man? And how many, first off, how many pull-ups could, could you do on a normal day? Uh, on a normal day these days, I'm not doing many. I do a couple hundreds. Uh, but for specifically that event that I was trying to go for, I was going to go do 8,000 in 24 hours. Um, there's a, there's actually a study with it, uh, three times 2,000 pull-ups. I, I was a subject on that one. And uh, it's going to be published soon. So it was interesting the different strategies that we uh, we tried to uh, uh, try to do. And actually, that study was also led by uh, Guy Guillaumier, uh, my supervisor. And yeah, I I just think that it's uh, I was just trying to challenge myself. Basically. <laughs> Dude, but seriously, that's like a huge feat. And, and interestingly enough, kind of something that you have in common with ultra running, because one of the ultra runner characters, right, that we uh, that a lot of people look up to, include, including myself, that I've known for a while is David Goggins, who had the pull up record for a long for a long period of time. 
So it's just interesting that all this, this stuff seems to come full circle, man. It's just a small group of idiots that keep regurgitating all, the, all this stuff that we're trying to do, right? Yeah. It's actually very, the, the pull-up uh, is quite similar to what you see in the ultra run. And in the study that will come soon, hopefully, we uh, try to show... Um, we try to show how the turns of events looks like a 24 hour run. So <laughs> that's, that's quite interesting dude. like upper body, lower body. And, oh my God. Yeah. So 8,000 and 24 hours would be the record. Do you have any thoughts on trying to capture that record in the future? I, I don't think so because I uh, lost the fitness and I also gained some weights and so on. Like it's, been, it's been two years and then the gyms was, were closed due to COVID and then I couldn't work out well. So I, I just lost the fitness. So oh, man. Well, that, that's a hard thing to do now. Yeah, you got to train a lot for it. Well, we'll have to yeah. circle back when that paper comes out more just to talk about it. Yeah. Anything else? I think that's really cool. Uh, but we're, we're going to talk about ultra running, man. And um, as we were chatting offline a little bit, um, I was recently at the Hard Rock 100. And there, there are two primary things that ale the runners out there and everybody talks about it before the race and everybody complains about it afterwards and the first one is the high elevation so it's the average elevation of eleven thousand feet it tops out at handy's peak which is over fourteen thousand feet and that causes a whole host of problems the main one of which just being nausea um and so athletes have come have, have kind of undertaken a number of different strategies to combat that using altitude tents and getting out on the course and trying to improve their fitness and things like that. And the second one, which is more in your wheelhouse is how to, how to really combat and to introduce interventions that specifically can help them deal with the copious amounts of descending that is on the course, 33,000 feet of climbing, 33,000 feet of descending. And over the course of a hundred miles, that's just a lot of wear and tear on your legs. And and um, as uh, as a lot of the research has started to to come out, research is, might might not be the right word, but as a lot as the rate, a lot of the race analysis has started to come out, we start to see a lot more of the time gaps open up in the latter parts of the race, and specifically on the descents, as opposed to the earlier parts of the race and the ascents. And I think a lot of the research that you're doing is is going to illuminate on how we can train ourselves better to, to combat, to combat that. Although it's still a big open question at this point uh, of the game, huh? Yeah. So, Certainly. so, so to start, to start out with, we're going to have to go back to some fun, to some very fundamentals, to some very fundamental physiology, but I want to know initially how you became, how like you became curious about eccentric work and the repeated bout effect and how this affects athletes and how they can better prepare for it. Like what's your kind of like personal interest in this and how did you get involved? I'm, I'm more of a biomechanist than physiologist. And uh, one of the things that I was really interested in to see the difference in two different conditions and uh, thinking about knowing that the, the repeated bout effect exists and we know about it and we know that it has a huge training effect that is not uh is not normal for uh, like a concentric type of contraction i was 
interested in trying to figure out how uh, the biomechanics of certain tasks would move, would change due to this training effect. And then the downhill running was a uh, quite uh, good example of how people uh, can get trained quite fast. And so you you mentioned this phenomenon that we've talked about previously on this podcast that a lot of the longtime listeners will recognize. And that's going way back to one of my earlier podcasts with Roger Anoka out of the University of Colorado, who's one of my undergraduate professors. And I remember seeing his class one day, and I still have his book. It's sitting over my shoulder somewhere. And we were going over, uh, we were going over the inoculation effect. I'm going to term it a little bit differently to kind of emphasize it more than anything else. And I was sitting in his classroom as a young undergraduate and endurance athlete, and he was trying to impress upon us that in most types of adaptation situations, whether it's an athletic one or a rehabilitative one, we're looking at an adaptation that can occur over the course of weeks and months. And the audience that, that is listening to this is going to be a lot of endurance athletes. And they recognize this. They put in training for weeks upon weeks upon weeks upon weeks upon months, sometimes even up to a year, even four years, that all, that, that all accumulates in some sort of apex race that they're training for. And for Professor Anoka to kind of like turn this on its head and to say that one bout of exercise offer some sort of adaptation or protective effect, the inoculation being the protective effect against subsequent bouts of exercise to me was kind of mind was kind of mind blowing and also uh, almost unbelievable at that point, because we were so used to this paradigm, this endurance training paradigm where adaptation takes weeks, if not months, not one single dose of it. Yet that's what we find with eccentric exercise. And, and I want you to try to explain that a little bit further for the audience because it is a very novel concept and one that I think a lot of athletes as we're preparing for these events, we have to kind of like shift our paradigm around in order to fully understand it. Yeah, so the eccentric exercise is kind of uh, very much different in terms of in uh, in many terms it's very different than concentric exercise or whatever people call it isometric exercise which is also um, another mode but in eccentric exercises uh, there are many theories that at some point people looked at eccentric exercise they did a um, one bout of leg extension for example eccentric leg extension and uh to uh, explain in a, a better term eccentric exercise would be the one that we uh, uh but that, that the muscles are lengthening uh, instead of shortening and while this lengthening is occurring and they're kind of the muscles are kind of uh, trying to withstand the force in that in that time there seems to be a uh, sort of a damage to the muscle or the contractile uh, system or the neural system as well and that kind of triggers some some uh, subsequent events that helps to regain strength and even get, become more stronger 
And we know that this, uh, we realized like 30, 40 years ago, we realized that this effect exists and uh, they become stronger. The second time they tried it, they realized that they, they're much more uh, resilient to this damage. And uh, that, that was something that very new at that time. And uh, then different uh, researchers looked at different perspective of it to see how this mechanism is working. And over the past 30 years, researchers come out with uh, different uh, mechanism that could that could contribute to this effect. And uh, you can you can think of many things, uh, many different uh, possibilities. Uh, but there are four uh, four possibilities that is considered to be uh, a reason for this. But eventually what is happening is that uh, I think for an athlete, it would be more important to know that the outcome is that the neuromuscular tendon unit becomes stronger and uh, that is uh, and becomes more resilient to, uh, to muscle damage. And that is what an athlete wants, especially in such a long event of an ultra uh, ultra endurance or ultra marathon running. Well, and you, you mentioned some of the original context of this, which was to take a very simple exercise, a leg extension, or sometimes even just lowering the weight from like a bicep curl. People, you know, people always recognize a bicep curl because it's a vanity type of exercise and lowering the weight back down is the eccentric component of that. But how, how one bout of that can provide some sort of protective effect for future bouts what the endurance community kind of really wants to know is is okay how can we take how can we take some of these lessons and how can we learn from this phenom learn from this phenomenon to specifically apply it to an ultra marathon situation where there's a lot of climbing a lot of descending and the descending becomes quite problematic uh, particularly in the latter course of the race and you decided to study just that where you put subjects on a treadmill, you made them run downhill, and then you examined how this repeated about, how this repeated bout effect played out throughout the core throughout the course of the intervention. So, why don't we start with that study, and then we can kind of move into maybe what some learning lessons would be, or maybe what some what they could also te teach us about the trainability of this particular aspect. But let's just kind of start with the study design and what you were actually doing. So the, the study design was to make sure that we will have repeated bout effects and knowing that downhill running also has a lot of this eccentric contraction and that could basically damage the muscles the first bout and if we do it the second bout we will have this uh, strong effect that we are hoping to uh, figure out what is going on. I was mostly interested in the biomechanics but uh, I know that uh, and many people, many, uh, most researchers are also interested in the uh, physiology part of it as well. Um, so what we did was to bring the athletes and they ran on a treadmill for half an hour on a pretty steep descent, 11 degrees or 20%. And running on treadmill is a little bit different than uh, running on a trail because when you run on a treadmill you have to you have to 
uh, kind of break because you can't go further. Yeah, right. If you're running downhill. Uh, and that would even that 10, 11 degrees uh, uh, descent would be even more compared to a simple trail running. So that was decent enough that uh, that uh, slope was enough to damage them completely in terms of the their uh, muscle. Let me hold on. Wait, wait, but you're intentionally, let me, I I don't want the, the, the gravity, excuse the pun of the study design to get lost on the listeners. This is an a, it's an extremely steep slope that you're having them run downhill, but you're intentionally setting it up to induce a lot of damage. That's the whole design. Like you want to see a lot of fatigue and a lot of damage just from this, from this one bout. And so you're designing the condition to be almost as steep as possible. I don't even know how you get the treadmill to decline that much. So why don't you paint that picture as well to help like solidify it in the listeners' minds? Yes, we, we have this, um, instrumented treadmill that can go, uh, go, I think I'm not quite sure it should be close to 30 degrees that can go down. Like it's, it's very, very steep treadmill it, it can it can go even lower than that but uh, for our purposes we were just trying to make sure first the athletes will be okay at the end of the run and the second <laughs> that the athletes uh, will be damaged enough and knowing from the many years of research we knew that this is specific uh, uh, duration and this specific uh, slope would incur em- enough damage for us to be able to see the effect and then in the second part three weeks later we brought them again i asked them specifically and i logged that uh, everything to make sure that they they're not doing anything else during the three weeks which is a very difficult thing for athletes not to uh, work out but three weeks later we brought them again to the to the lab and they did the same exact same thing 30 minute downhill run and now we were, so we have condition one, we have condition two, condition one is going to incur lots of damage and condition two, two, we're hoping that doesn't incur that much damage. Hence the repeated blood effect. And then the, this was the design of the study. And then we had some variables of interest to look for. And so can you summarize generally what happened between week one and when you brought them back in the lab, and once again, this is such a weird thing because you just had them go, they did, I forget what you said, 30 minutes, 30 minutes running downhill, 20% slope, that's gonna be hard, but no other training at all in between point one and point two, which were three, when you were evaluating these people, which were three weeks apart. Can you encapsulate what the differences were that you found between those two points in times in terms of the damage that was occurring, the biomechanics, the biomechanics that were going on uh, while they were running and things like that. So yeah, in this study, it was quite a comprehensive study in terms of uh, both physiology and biomechanics. In the physiology term, we looked at the muscle damage, and we found close to threefold increase in a specific marker of muscle damage. We call it creatine kinase, um, and. That was uh, after the first downhill run. That indicates that the muscles were quite damaged. And that variable was almost non-existent, the increase uh, in the second downhill run. 
So that was the first thing that uh, was very interesting. So CK second, went up 3x after the first one and didn't go up at all after the second one. And after the second one, significantly, no, it didn't go up at all. Like almost non-existent. Um, and the second thing was that the, we also looked at the neuromuscular function and what we call it neuromuscular fatigue. We look at the neural aspect of fatigue and we look at the, the skeletal aspect of fatigue. And in both cases, what we found, but before and after, we can measure how much force that they, their quads can produce. And we did it before and after the first run and before after the second run. And again, there was a huge reduction in the uh, force production capacity, or in better term, we say a lot of neuromuscular fatigue. While in the second one, there was almost nothing almost nothing so that that's quite interesting to uh, uh to see in course of three weeks so across these while, two parameters right you have mu you have the muscular damage and the and and the neuromuscular component of it both of them were impaired significantly after the first one but hardly impaired at all after the sec after the after the three-week period in between the two trials yes and yeah, that that's quite uh, we that's what we were expecting to see, and it was just to show that this exists, and it is pro it is of course very interesting for runners. Uh, hopefully, that there was no other uh, intervention in between these three weeks. They just ran one downhill, and three weeks later they did the second downhill, and that was the. Uh, large effect. So every time I see these things, I'm always impressed by the stark nature of the before and after footprint of the physiology and the biomechanics. And, and what I mean by that is, is normally when we look at training intervention studies in the endurance world, if we get like half a percent, you do an altitude intervention, right? You do an interval training intervention, you do anything like that, you would do a backflip over six weeks of doing a bunch of intervals and you see half a percent of VO2 max increase, half a percent at pace at lactate threshold increase. You'd absolutely, you'd go bananas over that. You think you're the smartest person in the world for coming up with whatever intervention that you came up with. And that's with an intervention that lasts six or eight weeks. They're doing a bunch of intervals. It's very, it's very time consuming. It's hard. There's, you know, it's, it's arduous on the part of the athlete. And here we have an intervention that all it takes is one and there's nothing, they don't, they literally don't do anything for three weeks and they come back in the lab and there's such marked improvements in these, uh, in these parameters. And I mean, it's almost, I hate to use the word magic, right? Because we're trying to dr drill down on the science of it, but it almost does seem like magic when you start to look at that and you compare it to everything else that we know about athletic and, and in particular endurance physiology. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting to just like, I, I've been an athlete before and I've, uh, I try to keep that uh, running uh, as a, part of a hobby for myself as well just thinking about it like if i like I, i'm just thinking about like a, in terms of squat if i go today to the gym squat 100 pounds and then i come back 
I don't know, three weeks later and squat like 150 pounds, that would be, that would be a huge, huge yeah. increase. And I think as an athlete, I, I think any, any athlete who gets to know this effect should make use of it okay. as much as they can. So that that's where we need to drill into. And I, I always, I'm always a little bit remiss asking people in the scientific community these types of questions because you're, it kind of takes you out of your wheelhouse and you're trying to extrapolate beyond the, you know, beyond the the study or the series of studies that have been done in, in, in the area, but you'll have to entertain, you'll have to entertain the questions for a little bit. We want to try to make this practical for athletes and we've danced around some of the, um, uh, some of the ways that this can appear in more of an intervention or some sort of way that athletes can actually train. But if you're consulting with athletes that are doing, you know, uphill, downhill types of races and knowing what you know about this repeated bout effect and about the work that you've done, what are some really pragmatic, um, what are some really, uh, uh, pragmatic pieces of advice that you could give athletes about their training to harness what you know about the repeated bout effect and how to deal with this eccentric component of the sport that we're doing. So I, I try to think of in terms of an athlete trying to either win a race or have a good race. So in terms of winning a race, one of the things that we know about downhill running specifically, and we know it from 1998, I hope I'm not mistaken, 1992, or uh, I think it's 1992. We know that uh, uh, there is the oxygen consumption or what we call it a, a cost of running, so, some sort of cost of running, not exactly cost of running, uh, but it's very, it is very re related to cost of running. We know that in downhill running, after like a, for a half an hour downhill run, it increases quite a lot. And uh, we know that this increase does not occur in level running. In level running, if you run for half an hour, for one hour, there will be a small increase in uh, oxygen consumption due to some physiological factors. But in downhill running, we see a large, large increase, well over 10%. And one of the ways to uh, deal with it, and I think, uh, the thinking about the, how the bio, how you can change the biomechanics of uh, the movement. And for that specific reason, I looked at the biomechanics of this downhill running uh, uh, at the minute one and at minute 30 of this downhill run. And what I found during the first downhill run, the biomechanics of running was completely shattered. Like it was completely different compared to the beginning of it. And uh, to just compare how different what is uh, it, it was, uh, we can think of like a uh, like a contact time. Like I'm pretty sure runners know exactly what the contact time is—the time that your leg is on the ground when you do when you take steps. The contact time incre increase in contact time during a one-hour liver run is around like one or two percent. While in the 30-minute downhill run, we saw eight to nine percent increase in this 
contact time. And it, this contact time is quite related to uh, uh, the cost of running or the uh, energy aspect of running. So that was the downhill running one. And during downhill running two, we did not see that much of an increase. There was an increase, but it wasn't as much. It was close to 4%. So that is one of the things in terms of energetics of that run or how much energy you consume to run that specific uh, distance in this, this specific race. Um, just previous exposure to downhill running helps by that much. And that four or 5% difference between the two belts is a very huge difference. And it would make a lot of difference in terms of uh, one race. So that's, uh, that's kind of one aspect of looking at how you, like the importance of previous exposure. Let me try to contextualize this a little bit because we, we were both, uh, in a series of, uh, uh, webinars, uh, hosted by your colleague, Guy. um, and in the up, it was a split in t- between an uphill seminar and downhill seminar. And I gave some perspective on the uphill and you obviously gave some perspective on the get downhill. But one of the presenters on the uphill was a uh, professor, Roger Crom, who did a lot of the uh, biomechanics research around the Nike Vaporfly several years ago. And if everybody can like teleport back a few years and all the controversy swirling around those shoes, which they found made about a 4% running economy difference. And it blew, like it completely blew up everything that we knew about the rules and performance. And we're going to have to rewrite this and rewrite that. What you're saying is, is the running economy different or we're using a cost of quote unquote cost of running difference just with one bout is over 4%. So I want to like contextualize the difference between those two and one being like so astronomical with a carbon fiber foot plate and another one being a simple one downhill intervention kind of causing us a, a, not the same, but a similar type of running economy improvement in air quotes. So just to clarify the contact time is quite related to cost of running and the oxygen consumption, but it's not exactly the same. So the, four to five percent increase in less increase in contact time would kind of have some effect on the cost of running that might be one or two percent three percent i think that could be a good next study for someone who's uh interested in to see looking at the both variables and see how they are related but there there is there is uh, definitely a uh big aspect of uh, big improvement of uh, performance between the two bouts. And uh, I, I just don't know how, how many percentage it would be, but it's, it's interesting. Even if it's like one or 2% at the end of the day, we're looking at just one wow. bout of downhill running compared to how many uh, years of research has gone into making uh, the paper fly. <laughs> There you so, go. Yeah. So we've got this one component where the biomechanic, where the you're, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try to coin this term a little bit, but you're more, you're more biomechanically resilient 
after this one bout of downhill running, meaning your mechanics just aren't changing enough and you're, you know, from a, from a performance standpoint, whether you want to talk about it in terms of the cost of running or you're smoother downhill or there's less damage, it's kind of everything all rolled into one. That's one component of what the, what, what athletes can kind of take home and what the practical implications are. But what are some of the other ones that you've found throughout this research where an athlete who's preparing for an event can look at this and go, okay, I'm going to practically apply this into my training over the course of the next few weeks. I think one of the important thing is that we, we now know that, uh, in many levels, we know from physiology, from biomechanics, that this effect exists, and we know how long it, it lasts, or we have a good idea of how long it could last. Um, and we know what happens in the first week after you do the first bout. So what would uh, I, what I would suggest, don't do a downhill run a week before your race. Don't do it two weeks before your race. <laughs> try to do it like three weeks before your race that we're quite uh, uh, sure that by that time you're completely recovered from that uh, previous damage and now you're stronger. And so having one or two bouts of uh, eccentric exercise and specifically if you're, if you're a runner, then the downhill running that could, that could uh, do a huge favor on a race day. Well, and one of the things you're referring to is what I just call the legacy effect of these types of workouts. And um, you're probably not aware, but we've had a lot of coaching roundtables on this podcast where we've talked about how to design training camps for athletes who are competing in mountainous events that live on in Florida, right? Florida and Texas, they don't have access to this, which is a really common situation for most most kind of normal people. And based on this research and the research that has that has come before this, we've we've come up with this generalized consensus that if we want to bring an athlete into a mountainous environment to do a training camp in, in advance of a mountainous type of event, we want to time that training camp to be anywhere between three and five, maybe six weeks at the very most in advance of in advance of that race. And a lot of that timing comes from this legacy effect that you, you know, that you mentioned where we can see a lot of these, a lot of these, a lot of these protective effects last up to three and up to three weeks and even longer. But shorter than that, there is a lot of damage induced. So it's this fine, you know, it's this fine balance between allowing enough time for all of the negative repercussions to work themselves out and enough time to let the positive ones kind of kind of shine through. So I'm wondering if you could kind of enlighten us about enlighten us about anything else having to do with that timing or that that legacy effect in terms of what what you know about all this all, everything going on with the repeated bout effect and eccentric exercise. Yeah, what uh, what I think it would be uh, interesting for the athletes that uh, there there there's been many research there's been. Uh, uh, specifically research in downhill running, but what one interesting research was from 1985. And that was like over 30, 35 years ago. Um, and in that specific research, they showed that the good amount of time would be three weeks to have that repeated blood effect. And it would be, 
it would last until six weeks, as you as you mentioned, and after that, it it might lose its uh, its effect. So, okay, here we get to some really practical pieces, right? Because we know in a research design, you're trying to isolate as many variables as you can. And you just mentioned this, this totally, and you're, you're going to have to forgive me for sounding a little bit contrite here. You have this totally over-contrived situation where you have these, these recreational runners, which is the population you were studying, do one bout of exercise. They don't do anything as to not confound the research. And then they do another bout. That's not the real world, right? In the real world, athletes will kind of continue to train and things like that. So what can we say or what can we what can we theorize a little bit about how this legacy parameter of, of three weeks plus or minus gets affected by the the normalcy of the training process? Athletes are going into an intervention like this or an intervention that like, like what we're proposing with some degree of training, and they're going to train to, to a certain degree after that, uh, after whatever intervention that they're using. What can we say about that, how that legacy, this proposed three-week legacy process actually gets affected by any of the training that happens before and afterwards? That's one, one of the things to make sure not to do after the first bout would be to make sure that uh, they're not doing much of a training specifically two or three days after that, that, uh, that could definitely could incur more and more damage depending on, um, we're thinking about a structure that is already damaged. And then you're trying to like three days later, you want to, you want to do another one. Uh, maybe if it is five or six days later, that would, you would see some effect as well because there's has there has been studies um, and I, I totally agree that these studies that we do specifically are very very much controlled to make sure that we don't have any other effect and at least we know that now we know that this is the this is the effect and then the compounding factors can come in um, in terms of uh, the the specific few days after that, I, I don't think that would be a good idea to do the first downhill run and then two or three days after do the second one. Or if you think about like even level running, level running is also uh, has a lot of not as much as downhill running, but it has a lot of eccentric component as well because you, you basically uh, uh, break and then uh, uh, propels yourself uh, for the next step as well. So for that specific period, I, I think the, the, at least for the first week after the very first one, probably it would be better not to do that. But if you want to, if you want to incur more and more damage, uh, um, controlled damage, so that you get stronger and stronger, I'd say a few uh, few bouts divided in uh, one or two weeks mm. or three weeks would be would be a useful thing to do. Uh, to kind of get the most out of this effect, but I'm pretty sure at some point there is a ceiling or there's a uh, there's a uh, limit to how much you can get out of this. Well, so you mentioned the word controlled damage, right? I, I love I love I love that term. I'm going to steal it from you. Um, athletes are they're they're very familiar they're very familiar with the concept of progressive overload, right? And 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 although that's a that's some training terminology that gets a little bit too far in the weeds. 
athletes will realize that, hey, one week I can run 20 miles a week and the next week I can run 30 miles a week and the next week I run 40 miles a week. And eventually there's going to be some sort of loading effect that produces an adaptation. The the adaptation in this situation is is markedly different. So does there need to be a progressive overload in terms of any of these parameters, the total amount of vertical descent, the speed or the force, I guess, if you want to put it that way, that the, uh, that the athlete is having to withstand, uh, from an eccentric, uh, uh, perspective. What do we know about those loading parameters and do we need to think about progressive overload in, in the eccentric, uh, form of exercise in the same way that we do in concentric, where we just need to keep adding stress in order to impose a specific or further adaptation. I I think that progressively overloading the tissue could be a good thing to a certain point. And then after that certain point, first of all, there will be a point like you, you can think about, like I, I try to think about it in terms of mechanics. Um, think about a, uh, I don't know, like some sort of a tissue that you're trying to uh, uh, put tension on. And then you can, you can, uh, and then the tissue becomes less and less uh, resilient to that tension. And then you, it, it gets stronger and then you come back and then now you need to increase the tension and so on and on. But there's a specific point that that uh, tissue wouldn't be able to withstand more than that, hence the overuse injury. Um, so to a certain point, I think it's it's good to uh, get the most out of this uh, effect that we could. But uh, I, I, I don't think that it could go forever because at some point the, the tissue, like even if the muscles are not, so the muscles are getting stronger, let's say. At the same time, the bones are getting you know, bash every, in every step. So, uh, at some point, one of them has to give up. So, and yeah, you don't want that to happen. But here, here's kind of what I'm getting at. Right. And I think this, this gets really practical is you can, you can choose to overload in a lot of different ways. And with downhill running, the two fundamental ways that you have is either you can do more descending right? So that's just more repetition, or you can do the same amount of descending faster. So that increases the force. Given those two and what you know, what, what would you theorize would produce a superior adaptation at the end of the day? If you just, if you just took your same study and said, listen, we're just going to have you run faster 30 minutes. We're gonna have you do more ascending, or we're going to have you do an hour at the same speed. Because once again, athletes going out there, this is, this is how, this is how this kind of gets reflected in from a from a practical perspective in people's trainings. They either want to run the downhills harder to induce that effect, right? I'm just going to go as fast as I can or they're going to do more vertical or sometimes both, which might be the worst of both worlds as you were mentioning earlier. But since we have a limited number of tools to pick from every day, what do you think would produce the superior adaptation in this case? That's a very difficult question. Love stumping you guys, by the way. It's fun for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> for in terms of thinking how much 
adaptation it would produce, we should think about how much damage that specific bout would would induce in the first place. We can think of an equivalent if we're just thinking about that. The reason it's very difficult to answer because I'm also thinking about something else that I'll, I'll explain later. Uh, but if we're just thinking about the adaptation itself and if we're, if we're considering the damage being the uh, start of that adaptation, we can think about two different equivalent bouts that would produce the same amount of damage. We can think about like, say, I don't know, like it's a thousand meter elevation loss at in 30 minutes. That would be one way to look at it. Um, or we can think about the same, like smaller elevation loss, like 500 meter, but this time instead of going for 30 minutes, this uh, this 500 meter, you want to go it in 15 minutes. Almost impossible, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of sp speed or uh, if we're thinking about like a 5k run. Um, but let's just go with the extreme, and it then it would be close to that one. Or another thing, another study from 2000 or 2001 uh, from Dr. Roger Stone, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that they looked at the uh, how they can change the stride length. So when you're changing the stride lengths, you're basically incurring more force into the muscle and you're incurring more damage. So you can think about the same thing or like a, a little bit less or more changing one variable like stride lengths, and then you will have uh, the same amount of damage. But at the, at the end of the day, I think um, we should always think about uh, another aspect of tissues in general and the fact that they fatigue and they if you're trying to be away from injury i guess i'd say if they get they get fatigued and there's always an exponential component to it like it it looks like right. this function so you want to you want to say that uh, in low load possibly even if the repetitions are too too high so the safer way i and that's just a guess I don't uh, don't quote right. me on that but that's a guess i would say that the um, safer way to do would be to uh, have a longer or or more elevation at slower speed i think that's a that's a reasonable way to come about that answer because once again you don't know you don't know what's going to produce the superior adaptation and we do, when you don't know, you have to move down the decision-making tree and go to what's what's likely to be the least problematic. And what's likely to be the least problematic, as you mentioned, is the low force, you know, the low force, low torque option of the two, which is more descending at a slower speed, simply because you you run less of a risk of getting injured in that situation and injury would trump any other intervention, right. That you could kind of throw at it. You miss training time. That's going to, yes. that's going to affect things more than any, any contrived uh, intervention that we can, that we can kind of come up with. But I think that's a reasonable, that's a very reasonable look at it. Yes. And on the other hand, if you think about uh, specifically downhill running, I think, uh, uh, you were in that uh, downhill running seminar as well with the webinar. Um, 
and Marlene talked about this, uh, another aspect of downhill running and the fact that they can speed up. Some people can speed up and some people can't. And I think it also has some sort of uh, training effect on, on it, but that is so like running with faster speed in downhill, like training in faster speed might be beneficial in that case. But again, the question would be, do you want to uh, risk the injury? Yeah. Whenever I've looked at preparing athletes specifically for downhill, I've always created two very distinct components. The physiology, as you were kind of going over, and that we have to completely shift our paradigm on thinking about how to train for this. Um, as, as compared to normal endurance events, which is a very chronic type of adaptation is the best way to put it. We have to completely shift that around when we're talking about specifically for, for downhill. That's the first part is the physiology. And the second part of it is just the skill. It becomes a very skillful sport, especially on very technical types of terrain, but even in non-technical terrain, because of the speed component and the visual eye foot coordination that's needed to, to cover those distances at those, at those speeds. I do think that those are both those are both very distinctly trainable parameters that we have to look at this condition of trail running very specifically at because it's not your prototypical the best VO2 max and the best you know power at lactate threshold types of wind scenario. There's more things at play. Yes, there. There, in terms of trail running, it would be much more there are many confounding factors that we we didn't consider in our uh, in our study we, we tried to uh, just to isolate a specific effect but yeah that as like you can have a so someone who has a very good vo2 max and have them run uphill they would be okay yeah but at the same time if you ask them to run downhill they it depends on many, many other factors. And very interesting in my study specifically, uh, looking at athletes individually, I had an athlete with estimated VO2 max of close to 70 milliliter, quite very quite, good. Yeah, very good athlete. Yeah, quite good athlete. And that athlete never ran downhill. And that the speed in my study was 2.8 meters per second, 10 kilometers per hour. Yeah, not very fast. Uh, basically, yeah, basically like for someone like with yeah. 70 milliliter oxygen, uh, VO2 max, that would be absolutely nothing to run that, uh, that speed. But interestingly, he was the one with the highest muscle damage. <laughs> Between my athletes, I had athletes who could barely run 10 kilometers per hour. So we, we wanted untrained people, right? So we could barely run that speed level, but downhill would be yeah. uh, uh, simpler. And he didn't get much of a uh, much much of a damage. So there are other and many important factors in terms of downhill running that needs to be uh, focus on. Yep. Specificity. The more and more I look at this, it's just, we can divide trail running into several different sports, uphill running, uphill walking, downhill running, downhill walking, level walking, like all of those things. And you as a biomechanist, I think can really appreciate how different those are, how different they are in terms of how you're actually locomoting and coordinating all the limbs and what that looks like, what that looks like systematically. The more and more I come back to it, it's the, 
they, they're just separate sports that we have to train for that are all linked by the cardiopulmonary system. Yes. So what do you want to know now? We just went through all this. You had a really cool study design. You've done some follow-up work with it. Like what is tickling your curiosity that you want to figure out next that the audience might be interested in? Well, the next thing that we were interested and we're hoping to get it published soon specifically for this downhill running was that so we ran for half an hour and this athlete got quite damaged right and good athlete your good 70 mils of vo2 max athlete got really damaged yeah they got they got really uh damaged after this run and then now we know that the biomechanics completely changed and as a biomechanist, for me, it's a, specifically, I was interested to know, is this change going to affect the, what is called, like, uh, we call it stress fracture risk. Is this going to affect the fracture risk or not? Mm. And is it something important to even look for or look at it? And that that's the next question that we're trying to answer right now. Mm. Interesting. And it, it is uh, quite has to do with uh, calculating the muscles of the forces and uh, how they interact in the body and how the um, bone looks like the shape of the bone and so on and then calculate how much uh, how much the bone is going to be deformed basically right because they're stressing their bone in a way that it's not used to because the muscles can't or the musculature can't handle it uh, kind of yes uh, yeah. So that would be the next uh, question to tackle. And I hope that that also has some uh, practical applications, uh, thinking that trail runners might also be interested in knowing the risk of their injury. Well, I look forward to seeing that come out because quite frankly, we're pretty terrible at preventing injury as a whole. And I put myself as a coach in that, you know, in that terrible category, the athletes, the physical therapists, everybody who's working in this that, you know, has skin in the game. If they're being honest with themselves, we're, we're not very good at preventing injury. So any research that we can bring to the surface and bring to the forefront that could potentially enlighten us on how those injuries can come about and how we can prevent them is all is always quite valuable. Yes. Uh, 40 years, 50 years of research in trying to (laughs) (laughs) work on the injury prevention has has led us to some point, but I I guess we still need to know way more. And at the same time, you, uh, like the athletes are usually uh, kind of take themselves to the limit. That's true. And that, that always is challenging and going back to like we talked about an average scenario and now we're talking about the limits and so on. So, um, it's, I think the argument, the, uh, conversation is going to be back and forth and, uh, getting better training and then, uh, at the same time trying to prevent injuries. Of course. 
Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This is really enlightening for me. I, I look forward to seeing what other future research uh, kind of comes out, but I can't thank you enough for the research that you've done because it helps me as a coach out and it helps all the athletes that I was conversing with at the Hard Rock 100 this, pag- this past weekend. It helps them out because at least we have some context to wrap the training around of what we're going to do. Otherwise, we're just guessing. So to at least have some context is quite appreciated. And um, where can the listeners find out a little bit more about the research that you are doing or any of the work that you have in the pipeline? These are, the research are usually on um, Google Scholar. So uh, I can, I can, give you a link of the Google Scholar like specifically for my account and uh, yeah that and also uh, it's on my uh, Twitter as well anytime any new research comes I, I put it on Twitter perfect I will have links to that in the show notes thank you for coming on the podcast today Arash I really appreciate it thank you so much for inviting me it was very fun All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Arash for coming on the podcast today and explaining a little bit of his research as well as entertaining me in how we can actually extrapolate that research to inform training and best practices for athletes. It is always a tricky thing. And over the course of my coaching career, I've seen any number of ways to try to combat this that have been deployed by athletes and coaches alike. And I think one of the things that we can learn from that myriad of different solutions to this is that we don't quite know how to ready athletes for this particular demand quite yet. However, whenever that is the case, I always feel like we can go back to fundamental early stage research in these particular areas and look at the physiology that is elicited for these types of activities and then come up with very practical solutions to try to uh, to try to ready athletes for those particular demands. It is not as simple as overloading the athlete as much as possible and hoping that that demand or hoping that that load is the right load to impose the particular demand. And I think Arash's research on the repeat about effect illustrates that quite readily. Appreciate the heck out of all you listeners out there. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to pass it along to your friends, your running partners, your family, your colleagues, anybody who might be interested in it. That means a lot to me personally and helps out the podcast a lot. That is it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.